Book Two, Chapter Three of The Black Star Passes by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. It was shortly after noon when the newly christened Solarite left on its first trip into space. The sun was a great ball of fire low in the west when they returned. Dropping plummet-like from the depths of space, the rush of air about the hull, a long scream that mounted from a half-heard sound in the outer limit of the Earth's atmosphere, to a roar of tortured air as the ship dropped swiftly to the field and shot into the hangar. Instantly the crew darted to the side of the great cylinder as the door of the ship opened. Fuller appeared in the opening, and at the first glimpse of his face, the hangar crew knew something was wrong. "'Hey, Jackson,' Fuller called. "'Get the field, doctor. Arcot had a little accident out there in space.' In moments the man designated returned with the doctor, leading him swiftly down the long metal corridor to Arcot's room aboard. There was a mean-looking cut in Arcot's scalp, but a quick, sure examination by the doctor revealed that there appeared to be no serious injury. He had been knocked unconscious by the blow that made the cut, and he had not yet recovered his senses. "'How did this happen?' asked the doctor as he bathed the cut and deftly bandaged it. Morey explained. There's a device aboard whose job it is to get us out of the way of stray meteors, and it works automatically. Arcot and I were just changing places at the controls. While neither of us was strapped into our seats, a meteor came within range, and the rocket tubes shot the car out of the way. We both went tumbling head over heels, and Arcot landed on his ear. I was luckier, and was able to break my fall with my hands, but it was a mean fall. At our speed we had about double weight, so though it was only about seven feet, we might as well fall in fourteen. We took turns piloting the ship, and Arcot was about to bring us back when that shock just about shook us all over the ship. We will have to make some changes. It does its job, but we need warning enough to grab hold. The doctor was through now, and he began to revive his patient. In a moment, he stirred and raised his hands to feel the sore spot. In ten minutes, he was conversing with his friends, apparently none the worse except for a very severe headache. The doctor gave him a mild opiate and sent him to bed to sleep off the effects of the blow. With the ship fully equipped, tested, and checked in every possible way, the time for leaving was set for the following Saturday, three days off. Great supplies of stores had to be carried aboard in the meantime. Care had to be exercised in this work, lest the cargo slip free under varying acceleration of the solarite, and batter itself to bits, or even wreck some vital part of the ship. At noon, on the chosen day, the first ship ever to leave the bounds of Earth's gravity was ready to start. Gently the heavily laden solarite rose from the hangar floor and slowly floated out into the bright sunshine of the early February day. Beside it rode the little ship that Arcot had first built, piloted by the father of the inventor. With him rode the elderly Morey and a dozen newsmen. The little ship was badly crowded now as they slowly rose, high into the upper reaches of the Earth's atmosphere. The sky about them was growing dark. They were going into space. At last they reached the absolute ceiling of the smaller ship, 
and it hung there while the solarite went a few miles higher then slowly but ever faster and faster they were plunging ahead gathering speed they watched the radio speedometer creep up one two three four five six steadily it rose as the acceleration pressed them hard against the back of the seats eight nine still it rose as the hum of the generator became a low snarl ten eleven twelve they were rocketing at twelve miles a second the tenuous air about the ship shrieking in a thin scream of protest as it parted on the streamlined bow slowly the speed rose reached fifteen miles a second the sun's pole became steadily more powerful they were falling toward the fiery sphere away from the earth a microphone recessed in the outer wall brought them the fading whisper of air from outside arcot shouted a sudden warning hold on we're going to lose all weight out into space there was a click and the angry snarl of the overhead generator died in an instant as the thudding relays cut it out of the circuit simultaneously the air scoop which had carried the air into the generator switched off transferring to the solar heat as a source of power they seemed to be falling with terrific and ever-increasing speed they looked down saw the earth shrinking visibly as they shot away at more than five miles a second they were traveling fifteen miles a second ahead and five a second straight up the men watched with intense interest as the heavens opened up before them they could see the stars now a scant degree from the sun itself for no air diffused its blinding glory the heat of the rays seemed to burn them there was a prickling pleasantness to it now as they looked at the mighty sea of flame through smoke glasses the vast arms of the corona reached out like tentacles of some fiery octopus through thousands of miles of space huge arms of flaming gas that writhed out as though to reach and drag back the whirling planets to the parent body all about the mighty sphere stretching far into space a wan glow seemed to ebb and flow a kaleidoscope of swiftly changing color it was the zodiacal light an aurora borealis on a scale inconceivable arcot worked rapidly with the controls the absence of weight that gave that continued sense of unending fall aiding him and his assistance in the rapid setting of the controls at last the work was done and the ship flashed on its way under the control of the instruments that would guide it across all the millions of miles of space and landed on venus with unerring certainty the photoelectric telescopic eye watched the planet constantly keeping the ship surely and accurately on course that would get them to the distant planet in the shortest possible time the work thereafter became routine requiring a minimum of effort and the men could rest and use their time to observe the beauties of the skies as no man had ever seen them during all the billions of years of time that this solar system has existed the lack of atmosphere made it possible to use a power of magnification that no terrestrial telescope may use. The blurred outlines produced by the shifting air prohibits magnifications of more than a few thousand diameters. But here in space they could use the greatest power of their telescope, 
With it they could look at Mars and see it more clearly than any other man had ever seen it, despite the fact that it was now over two hundred million miles away. But though they spent much time taking photographs of the planets and of the moon, and in making spectrum analysis of the sun, time passed very slowly. Day after day they saw measured on the clocks, but they stayed awake, finding they needed little sleep. For they wasted no physical energy. Their weightlessness eliminated fatigue. However, they determined that during the twelve hours before reaching Venus they must be thoroughly alert. So they tried to sleep in pairs. Arcot and Mori were the first to seek slumber. But Morpheus seemed to be a mundane god, for he did not reward them. At last, it became necessary for them to take a mild opiate, for their muscles refused to permit their tired brains to sleep. It was twelve hours later when they awoke, to relieve Wade and Fuller. They spent most of the twelve hours of their routine watching and playing games of chess. There was little to be done. The silver globe before them seemed unchanging, for they were still so far away it seemed little larger than the moon does when seen from Earth. But at last it was time for the effects of the mild drug to wear off, and for Wade and Fuller to awaken from their sleep. Morey, I have an idea! There was an expression of perfect innocence on Arcot's face, but a twinkle of humor in his eyes. I wonder if it might not be interesting to observe the reactions of a man walking suddenly from sleep to find himself alone in space." He stared thoughtfully at the control that would make the ship perfectly transparent, perfectly invisible. "'I wonder if it would,' said Morey, grasping Arcot's idea. "'What do you say we try it?' Arcot turned the little switch. And where there had been a ship, it was no more. It was gone. Fuller stirred uneasily in his bed, tightly strapped as he was. The effects of the drug were wearing off. Sleepily he yawned, stretched, and blindly, his heavy eyes still closed, released the straps that held him in bed. Yawning widely, he opened his eyes, with a sudden start, sat upright. Then with an excellent imitation of an Indian on the warpath, he leaped from his bed and started to run wildly across the floor. His eyes were raised to the place where the ceiling should have been. He called lustily in alarm. Then suddenly he was flying up and crashed heavily against the ceiling. His face was a picture of utter astonishment as he fell lightly to the floor. Then slowly it changed and took on a chagrined smile. He understood. He spun around as loud cries suddenly resounded from Wade's room across the hall. Then there was a dull thud, as he too, forgetting the weightlessness, jumped and hit the ceiling. Then the cries were gone, like the snuffing of a candle. From the control room there rose loud laughter, and a moment later they felt more normal, as they again saw the four strong walls about them. Wade sighed heavily and shook his head. They were approaching the planet visibly now. In the twelve hours that passed they had covered a million miles for now they were falling toward the planet under its attraction. It glowed before them now in wondrous splendor, a mighty disk of molten silver. For the last twenty-four hours they had been reducing their speed relative to Venus, to ensure their forming an orbit about the planet rather than shoot around it and back into space. 
Their velocity had been over a hundred miles a second part of the way, but now it had been reduced to ten. The gravity of the planet was urging them forward at ever-increasing speed, and their problem became more acute moment by moment. "'We'll never make it on the power units alone out here in space,' said Arcot seriously. "'We'll just shoot around the planet. I'll tell you how we can do it, though. We'll circle around it, entering its atmosphere on the daylight side, and shoot into the upper limits of its atmosphere. There the power units can find some heat to work on, and we can really slow down. But we'll have to use the rocket tubes to get the acceleration we'll need to drive the ship into the air." There was a sudden clanging of a bell, and everyone dived for a hold, and held on tightly. An instant later there was a terrific wrench as the rocket jets threw the plane out of the way of a meteor. We're getting near a planet. This is the third meteor we've met since we were more than a million miles from Earth. Venus and Earth and all the planets act like giant vacuum cleaners of space, pulling into themselves all the space debris and meteors within millions of miles of their gravitational attraction. Swiftly the planet expanded below them, growing vaster with each passing moment. It had been changing from a disk to a globe. Now, as the molten silver of its surface seemed swiftly clouding, it turned gray. Then they saw its true appearance, a vast field of rolling, billowing clouds. The solarite was shooting around the planet now at ten miles a second, far more than enough to carry them away from the planet again, out into space once more if their speed was not checked. "'Hold on, everybody,' Arcot called. We're going to turn toward the planet now." He depressed a small lever. There was a sudden shock, and all the space about them seemed to burst into huge, deep red atomic hydrogen flames. The solarite reeled under the sudden pressure, but the heavy gyroscopic stabilizers caught it, held it, and the ship remained on even keel. Then suddenly there came to the ears of the men a long-drawn whine, faint almost inaudible, and the ship began slowing down. The solarite had entered the atmosphere of Venus, the first man-made machine to thus penetrate the air of another world. Quickly Arcot snapped open the control that had kept the rockets flaming, turning the ship to the planet, diving it into the atmosphere. Now they could get their power from the air that each instant grew more dense about them. Wade. In the power room. Emergency control post. Mori, control board there. Hang on, for we'll have to use some husky accelerations. Instantly the two men sprang to their posts, literally diving, for they were still almost weightless. Arcot pulled another lever. There was a dull snap as the relay in the power room responded. The lights wavered, dimmed. Then the generator was once more humming smoothly working on the atmosphere of Venus. In a moment the power units were operating again. And now as they sucked a plentitude of power from the surrounding air, they produced a force that made the men cling onto their hold with almost frantic force. Around them the rapidly increasing density of the air made the whine grow to a roar. The temperature within the ship rose slowly, warmed by friction with the air. Despite the extreme cold at this altitude, 
more than 75 miles above the surface of the planet. They began dropping rapidly now. Their radio speedometer had fallen from 10 to 9, then slowly, but faster and faster, as more heat could be extracted from the air. It had fallen. 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Now they were well below orbital speed, falling under the influence of the planet. The struggle was over. The men relaxed. The ship ran quietly now, the smooth hum of the air rushing over the great power units coming softly through the speaker to their ears. A humming melody. The Song of a New World. End of Chapter 3 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com